In this day and age, it seems like somebody is always getting offended. People find themselves offended or even emotionally attacked by simply the presence of someone who disagrees with them. It then becomes their constitutional right and almost seems as though it's their duty or obligation to make sure the offending party removes all offensive things so they can continue on with their lives unoffended by what you might say, think, or do. And we get upset when people infringe on our constitutional rights and when they infringe upon our own freedoms. That's a very American thing to do. But there comes a time when we are called to lay down our rights. Don't worry, I'm not talking about as citizens of America here. There comes a time when we are called to lay down our individual personal rights. Let me give you, and these rights often come from our own views of ourself, our own ideas of ourself, or the things that we've achieved here in this life. Allow me to give you a hypothetical situation that would never happen here. For, in, for example, we have a cleaning schedule for cleaning the church. And I don't, make sure, I don't check off who's here and who's not here. That's not part of my job description, so don't worry about that. But let's say you are someone who is, every time your name comes, you come and you clean the church as best as you can. And then someone comes up to you who you've noticed never cleans when it's their time to clean, and they complain about the crumbs in the sanctuary. And you think to yourself, what right do you have to complain about my cleaning when I am always cleaning and I have once to see you ever lift a finger to clean? And we get offended. It's part of our nature, isn't it? It's easy for us to do. There comes a time when we should just humbly receive that and say, okay, I will pick up those crumbs. And there comes a time also in your lives when you realize it's not your work, but by looking out for the interests of others, you see the crumbs and you pick it up yourself too. Uh, That's part of life, I guess. But we get offended easily at times when people step on our own perceived rights, the rights that we have earned for ourselves. Tomorrow is a special day in the baseball world. I'm a baseball fan. Tomorrow is Jackie Robinson Day. Many of you remember hearing about all the commotion that came when Jackie Robinson first wore a Brooklyn Dodgers uniform in 1947 on April 15th. There's all kinds of chaos that surrounded him throughout that season. As a screenwriter for the movie 42 Comments, he said that this person to break the color barrier had to be someone who had the guts to turn the other cheek who wouldn't feel like he always has to prove himself with his fists. Fighting back is a natural thing to do. Turning the other cheek isn't. It goes against our nature. But for Jackie, it needed to be done. And in the movie, Branch Rickey pointed out that everything would be lost if he fought back. He needed to be a fine gentleman and a great baseball player. Eventually, the baseball world woke up and realize that you can't judge a ball player based on the color of his skin. And we continue to pray that the rest of the world will wake up as well and realize that you can't value, the ju- you can't value a person based on the color of their skin either. But long before there was, a color, there was a color barrier in baseball, and way before baseball even began, depending on how you interpret Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, in the beginning, there's a joke there, there was a great barrier that needed to be crossed. One that no man would ever be able to cross, no matter how hard he tried. And that barrier is a barrier between God and man. 
Today and every Sunday, we celebrate the crossing of that barrier and its destruction in Christ Jesus. I invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 2. So I read verses 5 through 11. And we read about the one who has crossed that barrier and who literally had the guts to turn the other cheek. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And I'll invite you to stand out of respect for God's word if you're able. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Father God, these are your words, and your word is truth. In your word today, you reveal to us who Christ is and what he has done for us. Lord, help us to see you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Earlier in Paul's letter to the Philippians, he encourages believers to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ and to not only believe in Jesus, but to also suffer for his sake. That's a radical idea, that Christ calls us to suffering. We don't like to suffer. I don't like suffering, at least. But there comes a time when we as believers are called to suffer for the sake of our neighbor. Not to seek an escape or an easy way out, but to suffer for the sake of Christ. As Paul continues writing this letter, he reveals exactly what he means and what he's talking about. Chapter 2 begins with an exhortation to be selfless. And with humility of mind, to view others as more important than yourselves. To have the same attitude which was in Christ Jesus, or in other words, to have the humility of Christ. Not insisting on having it your way. Not living for your own life, looking out for number one first and foremost, but looking out for the needs of others and putting others before yourself. Then Paul writes one of the best explanations of Christ's humility that we have in the Scripture. Paul reminds his readers here of who Christ is and what he did. He existed in the form of God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Now let me pause here for a second and say what Paul is not saying. Please understand this is what Paul is not saying. I'll emphasize that again and again. Paul is not saying here when he says that Jesus is in the form of God. He is not saying that Jesus is like God or similar to God but separate from God. This is not what Paul is saying. He is not saying that Christ is not equal to God when he says that he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He is not saying that God left his divinity behind or his godness behind when he emptied himself so that when he came to earth, he stopped being God and he instead just became a man. That's not what Paul is saying here. If you remove the not from any of those statements, it's heresy. 
And the church has condemned that for centuries, over and over and over again. And if you believe these lies, then you just have another mere human being who couldn't be your savior, and you are still dead in your sins, and we have no savior. Believing these lies lead people to believe that Jesus wasn't really all that special, that he just did these things because he was in a right relationship with God, and that if you are in a right relationship with God, you can do the same things as well. Let me repeat, that is heresy. Christ did not come to show us what it means to be in a right relationship with God. Christ came to save us, not to show us what we can do. You and I would never be able to cross that barrier between God and man because we're sinful. And our sin is a reason why that barrier is there in the first place. But rather, Paul is affirming here in this passage that Jesus is equal to God, that he is in fact God. And as the Athanasian Creed puts it, that he is equal in glory and co-equal in majesty. Lenski explains this regarding equality with God, a thing to be grasped, as meaning that Jesus didn't regard the fact that he was on the same page as God. He didn't regard that for a thing for self-glorification. So when he walked down the streets of Jerusalem, he said, I'm God, clear the way, everyone. Don't you know who I am? That's not what Christ did. When in reality, Jesus, being God, had every right to demand the finest food, had every right to demand the finest hotels, the finest horses, the finest followers, all because, after all, he is God in the flesh. And yet that's not what we see when we read about Christ in the pages of Scripture. Though he was God, he hungered. And though he created the heavens and the earth, he had no home, no place to lay his head. And though he could have ridden 10,000 horses, he rides a donkey into Jerusalem. And his followers weren't necessarily what you would call the cream of the crop, were they? Paul explains what he means here when he emptied himself in the next phrase. He took on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Rather than laying aside his deity, he becomes a servant. And in doing so, he takes on flesh. He takes on flesh so that he can become a servant. Literally, he took on humanity. He became the God-man, 100% God and 100% man. Paul writes in Colossians that in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He's not 90% God, 10% man. He's 100% God. The fullness of God is there in Christ continually and always. Again, Jesus did not stop being God when he took on flesh, but rather he humbled himself. He took on flesh to become a servant. He crossed that barrier between God and man, becoming God and man himself. He submitted himself to human limitations. Think about that for a moment. The creator of the universe humbles himself, takes on man, becomes a man, takes on flesh, and all the limits that human flesh has so that he might serve his creation. How backwards is that? We're the ones that are supposed to be serving him, and yet Christ came to serve us. 
And Jesus humbles himself even further in the next verse. He says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Jesus, who is the life, takes on mortal flesh so that God in the flesh could die. If you've ever been around someone who's dying, you know it's not a pretty sight. You know it's not a glamorous thing. Their bodies fight to the very last moment. Slowly but surely, you lose control of all of your senses, all of your functions. And it's gruesome. It's humiliating. And there's nothing you can do about it to stop it. And yet Christ could. And even though Christ could, he didn't. And he voluntarily went through that process of dying so that he can be with you when you go through that process of dying as well. And if death itself wasn't enough, the way in which Jesus died was itself humiliating. Scripture speaks of people who die hanging from a tree as being accursed. And as Christ was nailed to the cross, there he was, quite literally, hanging from a tree. Accursed of God. Hanging with criminals. And the crowds cheered and figured that he was getting what he deserved. But Jesus wasn't accursed because of his own sin. He had none. He was accursed because of the sin of those very people who were celebrating his death. Celebrating his crucifixion. Cheering that this man was finally getting what he deserved. When in reality, he was getting what they deserved in their place. Getting what you deserved in your place. So there he hangs, suspended naked, and on display for all to mock and for all to shake their heads at, accursed, cursed of man and accursed of God, as he became sin, who knew no sin. And rather than hold it against these crowds, rather than hold it against you, what is it that Christ prays on that cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Christ, who had every right to come down from that cross, who had every right to just smite every single person that was saying, crucify him, who has every right to take you out right now because of your sin, willingly subjects himself to crucifixion and prays for your forgiveness so that you might be saved. Christ lays down his rights, not for his own interest, but for the interests of you and me. And this is what Christ calls us to do, to have that same mind, that same attitude of Christ, to look out for the interests of others more so than for ourselves. Jesus didn't do it because it would be pleasant. He didn't do it because mankind deserves it. But he did it because he was looking out for the interest of you and me, for the interest of lost and condemned creatures. Because this is what sin looks like. And this is how salvation needed to be won. And so Christ quite literally humbles himself, taking on the form of a man and becomes a servant. He literally takes on flesh and guts so that he can turn the other cheek, so that he can be wounded, pierced, beaten, spat upon, crucified, so that he can die. Christ humbled himself and submitted himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, to destroy the barrier between God and man so that sinners could be saved, so that you and I might be saved. 
However, Jesus didn't stay in that form of a servant. Paul goes on with his letter to write that for this reason also God highly exalted him. And now Christ continually and always is exalted. He is no longer in that form of a humble servant. No longer in the form of a bondservant that he was before when he walked on this earth. He dropped that slave's form and is now exalted and glorified. This doesn't mean that he no longer has a physical body. You can go look for the tomb. You can go and look for DNA evidence of Christ. You're not going to find it because Christ took his body with him and his body is still there. His body is no longer limited by the earthly limitations that you and I have in our bodies, that the body had that he had, the limitations that he had when he walked on this earth either. Christ is forever the God-man. He's removed the barrier between God and man, and in his body, which was limited before, it is no longer limited. For he is risen, and his flesh has been glorified. What does this mean? It means that Christ, in his body, can walk through locked doors and comfort cowering disciples who have locked themselves out from the rest of the world. It means that Christ, in his body, can come to his disciples and his disciples can poke their fingers through the holes in his wrists and their hand in his side because his body is still there. That Christ can have breakfast with his disciples on the beach because his body is still there. It also means that Christ can physically be here with us when we receive his body and his blood in the Lord's Supper. And that if every congregation, every Christian gathered together in different locations in the world at the same time and received communion all at the same time, that Christ is still physically present there because he is no longer limited with the earthly limitations that he had. He is glorified. But the significance continues even more for you. Christ is physically there when you're suffering. Christ is physically there when you don't know what to do. Christ is physically there with you always for everything that you go through. When you lay down your rights for the sake of others, Christ is with you. When you're being persecuted for your faith, Christ is with you. In your trials and your pain, whatever it is that you're going through, Christ is with you. And that's a glory for us. That's a comfort for us. Another part of his exaltation is seen in the name in which he was given. Names meant a lot back in the day of the scripture, more so than they do now. But God gave this name to Christ, which is above every name. And it's more than just the syllables Jesus. It's not just that little word there. But the name is everything that a person is wrapped up in, everything about a person, everything that that person is revealed to be, the entire revelation of Christ, the entire work that Jesus has done. It's almost a title of sorts. It's a whole blessed and glorious revelation of the Savior. Remember what it was that the angel told Joseph he would name his son. You shall call his name Jesus. And why? For he will save his people from their sins. This is the title that Christ has, that Jesus has. This is the very job that Christ came to do. And so because of this, his name is exalted above any other name, more than any other person throughout human history. And that's what the name and person of Jesus is all about, saving his people from their sins. 
And at his name, Scripture says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when Jesus comes again in his glory and in his majesty, no one will be able to deny his lordship. No one will be able to look the other way and say, I didn't know who he was. Paul is not saying here that everyone will be saved. It's not what he is saying, so don't take it in that way. For the people who believe in Christ, when he comes again and his glory is revealed, we will gleefully and joyously say, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the shout of praise and his glory. And for the people who've rejected Christ, they will realize that he is who he said he was, that he is the Lord. They will realize that they missed their chance and there is no more chances. And every excuse and every lie that they believed on this earth will be exposed for what it is, a lie. And in their utter dismay, they too will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. And I missed it. And this is precisely why Paul calls believers to have the same attitude as Christ. Not that we would be exalted as Christ is exalted, but that people would have no excuse as they walk through their lives here on this earth that they didn't know that Jesus Christ was the Lord and is the Lord. That they would catch a glimpse of the attitude of Christ and that they would see Christ's love for them so that they would glorify God now. Jesus first and foremost humbled himself to accomplish salvation for us, to break down that barrier between God and man. And now as Christ is physically and truly present with us, he's showing us his footsteps in which he calls us to walk, to have the same attitude as Christ Jesus and putting others' needs before your own. Not to seek out our own self-glorification, even though at times we may have earned that right. Not to demand that everyone around us meet a certain level of morality or whatever it is that we want to make, give them levels of, but to put the needs of the souls around us above our own physical comfort. We are to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than ourselves. Not to look out for our own personal interests, but also for the interests of others to care for the eternal destiny of the people that are around us. This is what it means to have the mind of Christ, to lay aside our priorities, lay aside our preferences, lay aside even our prejudices, and realize that every human being that you see, every human being that you hear and that you talk about, is a person for whom Christ has died regardless of what they look like, what they talk like, what they smell like, what they walk like, what they act like, or even what they think like. But for Christ's sake, and for the glory of God, to lay down your own interests for their interests, that they might know who Christ is and what Christ has done for them. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for what you have done for us in sending us your Son. Christ, we thank you that you did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, that you didn't hold that over our heads, but you willingly took on flesh that you might be wounded for our sins, that we might be healed by your very wounds. 
Father, that we might be saved by the blood of your Son. Jesus, I pray that you would teach us to see what it means to live for the interests of others. Help us, Lord, to not look out for our own interests, but for those around us, and to bring the message of what you have done and what you have accomplished to those around us. Lord, that more people would know who you are and that more people would glorify you as their Lord and Savior even now. We thank you and we praise you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.